power of the cross. There is nothing like the cross. No event in human history, no event in cosmic history compares to the cross of Christ. Today we look at the cross from God's Word, so let me invite you to open the Scriptures with me today to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15 as we continue our message series from the Gospel of Mark. And we are nearly at the end of Mark's writing. In fact, we'll conclude uh, the gospel next week, uh, next Sunday morning, but uh, it's the climax of the gospel that is here at the end of the gospel. Today we look at the cross, the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, and the implications of it uh, for us. So as you find your place there in Mark chapter 15, let me invite you to join me standing for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 15, I'll be reading verses 16 through 41. God's word reads this way. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. 
In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Let's bow in prayer. And Lord, we do thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that you are a God who has spoken and a God who speaks to us even today through your word, by the presence and power of your spirit. Lord, may you do so this morning, for we are listening. It's in the name of Jesus we pray and ask these things. Amen. Church, you may be seated. Well, this account of the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, stands at the center of what we Christians profess to believe. In fact, this story is a basic and necessary story uh, within the Christian confession. The scriptures are clear that there is one God. He alone is God. He is Father. He's Son. He's Holy Spirit. He is Lord. He's Master. He's in charge. There's no one that compares to Him. His very identity, His position, His status necessitates that He rules, that He reigns, that He is sovereign, regardless of how people may respond to Him. But it's because of what this God does, and specifically what God does through through Jesus, that He becomes our Savior. Jesus did not have to die, but He had to die if God was going to save us. And Jesus chose to die on the cross for us, despite us. He gave Himself willingly, humbly for us, that we might have life and forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation in and through Him. Jesus has been in the garden. He's been in the garden of Gethsemane. He's been agonizing in prayer before the Father over what He is about to endure. And now the time has come. Condemned. He's been sentenced to death. Surrounded by a battalion of Roman soldiers who begin to play games with the Son of God. But imagine for a moment the humility of, of our Maker. The one who fashioned the world into existence. The one who shaped the earth and the planets and Slung the stars out in the galaxies. The one who gave life to the water. The one who caused the trees to spring up from the ground. The one who made you and who made me. Imagine the humility of this one as he comes to earth. As he becomes a creature. And now he stoops down and allows himself to be treated like an action figurine. By soldiers bent on executing him. We'll miss the irony in the king of kings being treated as a fake king. Purple robe, crown of thorns, hail, king of the Jews. Mocking, ridiculing this Jesus as one who in their minds is not worthy of their devotion, who's not worthy of any significance at all, who has been condemned to the death of a criminal. Just what a poignant picture of human nature. The depth of sin nature in an attempt to eliminate God, to destroy God. Sure, none of us were there. We 
We didn't witness this. We didn't strike Jesus on the head with a rod. We didn't spit on him like these soldiers did. But the truth is that every time we sin against him, every time we reject him, every time we rebel against him, we, we ridicule him. We act as if he is not who he says he is. The truth is that all sin mocks Jesus. And our sin mocks Jesus. And if you go out in your car and you drive right through a stop sign or uh, you uh, exceed the speed limit on the highway, I'm not judging, I'm uh, right there with you. Uh, Or if you toss out your litter on the side of the road, I I don't do that. Or if you cheat on your taxes, I, I don't do that either. But if you do these things and other Other avenues of breaking the law, in essence, you are saying those who make the law don't know best. They're wrong in this instance. I am not accountable to them. And likewise, church, when we knowingly sin, when we disregard the standard of God, we are saying God does not know best in this instance. I am not accountable to Him here. Whenever I ignore God's standard... I'm rejecting him. I am ignoring his status, his position. I am ridiculing him. I am making a mockery of him. Church, whenever you or I or any other sinner sins against him, ignoring his standard, then we stand right with these soldiers who made a mockery of the King of kings and Lord of lords, ridiculing Jesus. Jesus received ridicule from us. So the Bible teaches that Jesus received ridicule, not just from these soldiers, from us. This is not simply a story about something that happened in history. This is more than that. This is a story about you and me and God's intervention in our lives. Earlier, we we heard David read from Isaiah 53. Isaiah the prophet is given a picture of this suffering servant who is to come, this Savior, this Messiah, and what He is going to endure. And the Lord speaks through Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, hear it again. He says, He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held Him in low esteem. See, friends, when we see this shocking mockery of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth in the flesh, we ought to see ourselves. For Jesus received ridicule from us and Jesus took torture for us. On the cross, Jesus took torture for us. I think there's some intentional repetition that's going on here. The author of this Gospel, Mark, wants us to recognize, he wants us to see, he doesn't want us to miss the fact that Jesus died on a cross. That Jesus was was crucified. Notice the repetition here as we look back at it. Let's back up to chapter 15, verse, verse 12. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Verse 20. 
Then they led him out to crucify him. Verse 24, and they crucified him. Verse 25, it was 9 in the morning when they crucified him. Verse 27, they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and the other on his left. In verse 32, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Mark doesn't want us to miss the fact that Jesus was crucified. Crucifixion was designed to inflict humiliating torture on the worst of criminals. A bloody public spectacle designed in such a way to inflict a prolonged death, usually, as we said last week, by asphyxiation or shock. I think even here, as the soldiers in verse 36 offer Jesus some wine vinegar, it's simply an effort to prolong the inevitable, to prolong Jesus' death by temporarily quenching his thirst. Friends, Jesus took torture for us, the worst kind of torture. Isaiah continues in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. He writes, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, on the cross, Jesus stood in our place as the perfect Lamb of God, as the substitute who gave his life as a sacrifice for you and for me, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be restored, so that we could have life here and forever in him. Jesus took torture for you and for me. Jesus received ridicule from us. And thirdly, Jesus stayed to save us. Jesus stayed. He stayed on the cross to save us. Did you catch the dialogue that takes place between these passers-by and Jesus as He hangs on the cross? Jesus Long spikes through his wrists and his feet, excruciating pain, hanging there to die. Some passers-by come along, verse verse 29, and say, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Then the preachers and the priests join in. They say he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Mark tells us those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, was taunted by everyone. Suddenly ridiculed by the soldiers, and now he's ridiculed by the religious elite. He's ridiculed by the common people. He's taunted by fellow criminals. There's more truth, far more truth in what they say to him than they know. Jesus could come down off the cross. He could save himself. In fact, he tells us, John tells us that Jesus said that no one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. But the truth is that Jesus could not come off the cross if he was going to save you and me. And he chose us. He chose to save us. He chose to give his life for us. 
And by staying, Jesus endures more than just excruciating pain. By staying, He endures more than just the insults of humankind. By staying, Jesus endures desolation and despair associated with taking the wrath of God in our place. Notice His words in verse 34. He says, My God, My God, Why have you forsaken me? Cried Jesus. Notice the personal nature of this cry of abandonment. He says, my God. My God. There's a relationship there. If you came up to me after uh, the service this morning and uh, you said, hey, Chris, that was terrible. I'm never coming back. Uh, That would sting a little bit. Probably more than a little bit. Uh, That wouldn't feel very good. But if I went home today and my wife of 10 years came up to me and she said, this has been terrible, I'm leaving and I'm never coming back, that would sting on a whole nother level. Because it's predicated on a certain relationship and commitment and vulnerability and intimacy with one another. And the intimacy or the commitment, love that I have for my my wife or that you have for your spouse or any two people have for one another is only a shadow of the perfect intimacy and commitment and harmony and relationship that has been experienced by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity past. And this is what Jesus offers to give up, to relinquish, to relinquish the the joy of perfect relationship with, with Father and Spirit in a moment on the cross For you and for me. Church, Jesus entered the darkness to give us the light. He entered the darkness to give us the light. You know, Mark is not uh, unique in this way. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are are intentional uh, about recording uh, some of the most significant events associated with Jesus' death taking place in the dark. Right? Jesus is arrested in the night. Uh, his trial takes place in the wee hours of the morning before the sun comes up. And now, even at the point of his death, verse 33, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Supernatural darkness that cannot be explained here in any other way. In the scriptures, darkness during the day symbolizes God's judgment. His displeasure. On that good Friday, at high noon, God was judging. He was judging Jesus in our place. He was judging Jesus for us. The light of the world came into this world and penetrated the darkness So that we can have the light. But for a moment, for a time on that day, He gave Himself over completely. Becoming completely consumed and enveloped with darkness for for our sake. Other New Testament writers pick up on these images, this theme. John, the writer of John's Gospel, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, says it this way in John chapter 1, verse 9. He says, the true light... A reference to Christ, the true light that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The light of the world penetrates the darkness. He comes into the world so that we can have light, the light of life in in him. Paul, the pioneer missionary and apostle, there's a similar truth this way. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. He says, In giving joyful thanks to the Father, writing to believers, who has qualified you Christians to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. And Peter, Galilean, fisherman turned follower of Christ writes the same truth this way. First Peter chapter two, verse nine, he says, believers, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Church, Jesus entered the darkness in order to bring us into the light When he died on the cross, the scriptures say, verse 38, that the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place in the temples, uh, in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that the temple and the sacrificial system had been abolished because the once and for all sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice toward which all other sacrifice pointed has now been given. Jesus is that sacrifice, opening up the way into the presence of God. Unknowingly, these soldiers cast lots to see who is going to get God's stuff that day. When God Himself penetrates the darkness, He comes into this world and He lays down His life so that we get more than simply His stuff. We get Him. Unhindered access to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Almighty Maker forever and ever and ever. Church, as you read this story, as you hear this story, as you sing about this story, as we so often do time and time again, that is central to our faith. As you hear and read and sing this story, see the character of Jesus. See the character of Jesus. Notice the character of Jesus. See His humility. Catch His compassion. See His sacrificial love. For if this story is true, in the way that Mark and the other New Testament writers record it, if this is true, how can we not be overwhelmed and flooded with joy at the mercy of God displayed on the cross of Christ for us? And as we see Him, we see God for who He is, fully exposed, His character for us. As we see Him, we begin to rightly understand ourselves. Begin to rightly see ourselves. And our failures, our shortcomings, our inadequacies, our rebellion, our rejection of Him. And even so, His Spirit, the Spirit of God, convicts us of our sin and calls us into a restored relationship with Him. 
inviting us to confess our sin and to trust Him as as Lord. See the character of, of Jesus and then confess your sin against Jesus. Confess your sin against Jesus. May we be a people who recognize our inadequacies. Who when Christ is exalted, we see our failures. But even so, the Bible extends an invitation to us, an invitation of forgiveness, full forgiveness, complete complete pardon, a reconciled relationship with, with God, a right status before Him, inviting us to become sons and daughters of the Most High God. The truth is we have fallen short. We have messed up. And we cannot save ourselves. But there is a Savior who extends salvation to us by faith through His sacrifice. The Savior has given His life. Overwhelming display of the grace of God. Unearned, undeserved mercy offered us. Ready to be received through repentance and faith. Faith is trusting Jesus. Certainly believing that he is, he is who He says He is. Part of trusting is, is following. Part of trusting is recognizing that, that he, he is exactly who He says He is. That He is who the Scriptures declare He is. And the Scriptures declare that He is the Son of God. Let's believe He is God's Son. Church, let's believe that He is, is God's Son. Mark 15, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man is, was, the Son of God. A Roman centurion of all people to make that confession. You see, Mark tells us right at the outset of his writing, the first line of his gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God. But up until now, no one seems to get it. Not the religious, not the disciples. No one seems to make the connection that this is the Son of God. And now a centurion, a hard man, a brutal man, a man who no doubt has witnessed and contributed to the death of of many in such a brutal way, recognizes something different about this one and says Jesus must be the Son of God. You see, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a centurion. It doesn't matter if you're a thief. It doesn't matter if you're an adulterer, a Sunday school teacher, whoever. It doesn't matter your past. Jesus died for you and He invites you to know Him through faith in, in His death on our behalf. He entered the darkness to give us the light, the light of life in Him. He invites you. He invites me. He invites whosoever will believe to take this gift of grace through faith in Him. So let's believe. Let's believe that He is who He says He is. Let's believe that He is God's Son. And then let's follow Him forever. Let's follow Him forever. See, at Calvary, the Father abandoned the Son so that He wouldn't have to abandon you and me. I don't know about you, but I... I could serve that kind of a Savior. I'd like to follow that kind of a Savior. I would like to identify with Him just as we've witnessed through baptism today. I'd, le- I'd like to be counted among His people. 
I'd willingly follow Him. I'd willingly serve Him. What about you? Are you following Him? Are you following the one who entered the darkness to give us the light? Church, let's follow Him. Father, help us to do so. Help us to be a people who recognize who you are. Who recognize your Lordship. Who bow before you. Who acknowledge our sin, our failures, our shortcomings before you. In a way that leads us to confession. And Lord, as we do, may we see the cross of Jesus and know that you are a God who has extended a pardon to us. One that never ever fades away. Lord, help us to believe the gospel truth that when you look upon those who've trusted in Jesus for salvation, you no longer see guilty sinners. You see the innocence, the righteousness of your Son, our Savior. Remind us of that truth today. May we live for you. May we serve you. May we respond in a way that glorifies you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.